Would you like to be used greatly for the cause of Christ? Would you like to be used greatly for the cause of Christ? Now, maybe that's not talking to you. Maybe that's something you're not thinking about. Maybe you've got other priorities. But if that is, if you want your life to matter for his cause, if you want your life to make a difference for the name of our Savior Jesus, if you want to be used greatly, what do you think is the most needed character trait to possess? What do you think is the most needed quality you need in order for God to be able to use you? Now, thinking about that, I believe it may surprise us today. It is not Bible knowledge. Now, Bible knowledge is so important but I know a whole lot of people that have wasted a lot of time, in fact, that may waste their whole life waiting until they have a certain level of Bible knowledge. It is not the ability to speak. It is not boldness, radical, wild boldness. That's not it. It is not dogged, crazy commitment. It's going to require that, but that's not the greatest trait. It is not work ethic. We need work ethic. It's not work ethic. It is not opportunity being available at the right time and the right place. It is not preparedness. It's not being ready. I think a, a lot of us think, you know what, I'll get ready someday and things will be in order someday. It is not preparedness. It's none of those things. Listen, the most needed quality that must be present in you for God to be able to use you is humility. For God to greatly use you, what must be present in your life is true humility. Now, as fast as I say that, as I'm saying that this morning, I know that seems backwards. That seems counterintuitive. That seems the opposite of what we would think. Yet, it is the truth today. For God to greatly use you, what must be present is true humility. Humility. Listen to that. For God to be able to greatly use you, what must be present, present, evident in your life is true humility. Today we're going to see exactly that in our study here in the book of Acts. Our message today is entitled, The Servant of All. The Servant of All. Today we're in Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 26. The Servant of All. Of all. Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 26. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 15, God's word says this <clears throat> After these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nossin of Cyprus a disciple of longstanding with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews 
who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this, we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know there is nothing to the things which have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we have wrote, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, and from blood and from what is strangled from for, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we come today and we're thankful for your grace today. We're thankful for your mercy today. We're thankful for the forgiveness of our sin that we have in our Savior, in his finished work, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would embrace that good news, that we would revel in that good news, that we would celebrate the Savior of that good news in our gathering today. Lord, I pray now in the teaching, the preaching of your word, that your church, your people would grow, that we would be prepared, that we would be equipped, and that we would be available to, available to be used in your service for your glory. Lord, I pray for some that will hear this message today, some in this room, some in other places that will hear that do not know you. I, I pray that in the hearing of the gospel, the good news of a risen Savior, that today they might trust you. Lord, I pray for boldness. I pray for, for help. I pray for strength. I pray, Lord, for, for open ears and hearts and minds. And I pray that the fruit of this hour again would bring much glory to you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Remember in our study, Paul has been making his way to Jerusalem. We've had that for several weeks, several sermons as we've passed through the verses. He is making his way to Jerusalem. On the way, as he passes through the many cities, as he passes through the many regions, he is taking up a collection of money for the persecuted believers there in the city of Jerusalem. And so he is making his way to Jerusalem. As he goes, he is taking up this collection, and he himself is going to deliver it personally to the church, to the believers there in Jerusalem. Now, strangely, on the way, God has been telling him that waiting for him in Jerusalem, there is terrible affliction. God himself has been telling him all along the way that waiting for him there in Jerusalem is great hardship. And yet, also led by God, he is committed to go. His missionary journeys have ended. That portion of his ministry is coming to an end. And he is making his way, knowing that persecution waits, to the city of Jerusalem. In our account... Most recently, Paul has addressed the pastors from the city of Ephesus. After that, he's gone through Tyre. Most recently, he went through Caesarea. He stayed, the Bible says, with Philip, the teller 
of good news. And so we're stepping along with him. He is making his way to Jerusalem. That's where we start back today on his journey. Beginning back today in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Now, verse 15 is very simple, very plain. I like the fact that it says, the Bible says, that he is going, they are going up to Jerusalem. It is an actual climb in elevation. They're actually going up to Jerusalem. Verse 16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nossin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. Now, I want you to see something here in verse 16. The verse says that the group made it to the home of Nossin of Cyprus. Evidently, he was a Hellenistic Jew. He is described as a disciple of long standing, meaning he had been a believer for some time. He was a long-time believer. Perhaps he goes all the way back to the start of the church in Acts chapter 1. But he is a long-time believer in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Notice it says, in this group are some of the disciples of Caesarea. Now, now don't miss that. In this group, they're making their way, are some of the disciples of Caesarea. Now, this is what I want us to see. Remember the believers in Caesarea are telling Paul, don't go. That's how our previous section of verses ends. They're saying, don't go. It's too dangerous. Don't go. There's trouble ahead. Don't go. In, in verse 12, it says they were begging him. Don't go, Paul. Don't go. Don't go. And so what do they do? They go with him. Now, here's the deal. I'm not sure if they're so impressed by Paul that they decide to go. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes somebody's so courageous that their courage inspires you. I don't know if they're so impressed by Paul they decide to go, or I don't know if they're so inspired to encourage Paul that they decide to go. But whatever the reason, they decide to go. Folks, be sure we sing if none go with me, I still will follow. But I want to tell you, it's a whole lot easier if somebody goes with us. It's a whole lot easier if somebody goes with us. Facing this danger, do you know if he's in danger, they're in danger too? Facing this danger, they go. Let me tell you something. Today, when we see somebody boldly, courageously taking a stand for Christ, we ought to team up. When we see somebody taking a stand boldly for Jesus Christ, we ought not just pass by. Together, we ought to say, let's go. We ought to team up. Verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. I want to look at just one word here in verse 17. It's the word brethren. It is clearly referring to other believers, both male and female. Be sure and understand that. It's talking about both male and female, other believers in the city. In fact, it becomes a word that actually represents believers. 
It is a word that represents the church. It is used often in the New Testament. As you read the pages of the New Testament, you're going to see this word often used to refer to believers. But, but don't miss it. Why use this word? I want us to think about that for just a second. Why use this word? Couldn't they just say, the believers received us gladly? Couldn't they just say, the Christians, followers of Christ, disciples received us gladly? Couldn't they have just said, the church, when we got there, received us gladly? Instead, it says, the brethren. Brethren is a Greek word. It translates most literally from the same womb. It means the same family, the same people, kinsmen, near of relation. Another definition, intimately related. It, it, it means the family. This is, this is what we are in Christ. We are of the same family as believers, the family of God. We are of the same birth, the new birth in Jesus. We are of the same father, and we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. And that's the word that God uses to describe the church. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus. What a great picture that is. What a great description that is. We are family as followers in Jesus Christ. Listen, Background doesn't matter. All these things in the past do not matter. Personal preferences do not matter. We are a family, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Here's what we ought to do. We ought to act like it. We ought to act like it. If there's a cause, you know what? If you have a cause, it's our cause. If you have trouble, if you find yourself in trouble, you know what? In the family, that is our trouble. If you, if you have work to do, listen, in the family, that is our Work to do. We are family as followers of Jesus Christ. All right, verse 18. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, verse 18 is a very telling verse. It says the next day, Paul and his group, now included in that group are some Gentile converts. They go into James and all the elders were present. Now I want you to see what's happened here. Where the church was apostle-led, now I want you to see this, where the church was apostle-led, now a change has occurred. Now we find, as we get to this point, the apostles have all gone out of Jerusalem. The apostles have all gone out on different missions. And so we find this change. The church was apostle-led, but now the apostles have gone out, and we find here that the church is pastor-led. A change has occurred in the church. The church is pastor-led. Now remember, we've seen this the last couple of weeks, the word for elders is interchangeable in the New Testament with shepherd, pastor, and overseer. James, now we need to see this, is not the apostle James. He has already died. He's already been killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is serving as pastor in Jerusalem. Well, 
he and all the other pastors meet with Paul and his group. Now, I tried to find this out. I tried to look it up. There's no really uh, good way to know. No one knows how many pastors are in this group, but some reports would say over 100 and maybe more than that. And so hundreds, perhaps hundreds of pastors from the city of Jerusalem are now meeting with Paul. Where Paul had the first pastor's conference outside of Ephesus, he now has the second pastor's conference here in Jerusalem. Verse 18 again. In the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Verse 19. After he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, there's a lot there. I want to read that again. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. They are gathered together, he and all the pastors of Jerusalem, and he begins to tell them all the things that God had done. Now, he leaves Jerusalem sometime earlier. He is now back, and he begins to tell them all that God had done. Now, I want you to see this. It is not a general statement. He doesn't say, oh, God has done tremendous things. He doesn't say, oh, the mighty hand that we have seen moving in this ministry. No, this is not a general statement. Notice here, it is a very specific statement. In fact, the Bible says he begins to relate to them. He begins to tell them one by one the things that happen. Now, isn't that what you do when you're excited about something? He starts telling about Barnabas. He starts telling about the church at Antioch. He starts telling about how the church prayed and sent them out. He starts telling about the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, one who got saved. He starts to tell them about Pisidian Antioch and how many got saved there. We preached there and many got saved. He starts to tell them about Iconium. The Bible says in a large number of both Greeks and Jews, both of them got saved in Iconium. He begins to tell them about Lystra. He tells them about there was a man that had no strength in his feet and we preached the gospel and in faith he leaped up is what he says and they, he began to walk. He begins to tell them about a day also in Lystra, that he himself was stoned. Can you imagine the story? They drug me outside of town. They stoned me. They left me for dead. But I got up, went back to town, and started preaching the gospel. He begins to tell them about the next day after that in Derby that he preached the gospel, and many disciples were made, is what the Bible reports. He begins to tell them about God's work in Cyprus and Syria and Cilicia and Traos and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Mars Hill and in Corinth and in Ephesus. But listen, he doesn't just talk about cities. He talks about people. He tells them about Timothy. Oh, a young man there, I knew his grandmother. I knew his mother as well. He tells them another story about a jailer and his whole family. He said, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Not only did the jailer get saved, his whole family did as well. He begins to tell them about Priscilla 
and Aquila. Let me tell you about a married couple that serves the Lord in faithfulness. He begins to tell them about Apollos, a man that was mighty in the Old Testament scriptures, but he needed Jesus, and in the hearing of the gospel, he found Jesus and was saved. And little by little, one by one, he told them of a living God and of a gospel of grace, the power of God unto salvation. And he told them what God had done. Praise the Lord. He told them what God had done. Now I want you to notice something here. The Bible says, the verse says, what God had done through his ministry. That's what Luke writes down. What God had done through his ministry. I, I want you to see this. God had done unimaginable, mighty, awesome things, but he worked through the faithfulness of his servant, Paul. He worked through the faithfulness of his servant, Paul. Here's the deal. Listen very carefully this morning. God in his infinite wisdom, in his plan, works through people. God works through people in his plan, in his wisdom. That's how he's chosen to work. Now, I don't know why he, he set it up that way. I'm not as wise as him. It seems like there had to be a lot more efficient way than to work through knuckleheaded people like us. But God works through people. God works through submitted, obedient people. Let me tell you something this morning. Hear me, listen to me. God will use you for his glory if you will follow him and serve him in obedience. You sit there and say, well, I've done this. And I've done too many things. And I, I've wasted too much time. And there's, there's got to be somebody better than me. You sit there and, and excuses start to roll into your head. I, I'm not good for that. Somebody else will be a better fit for that. I'm too far gone for that. Listen to me. Whatever age you are, whatever stage of life you find yourself, God will use you for his glory if you will submit to him and walk in obedience. Woo, God uses people. God uses people. I want to tell you something. I, I start to read that and I start saying, you know what? I want to be useful. I want to be used. I want to do something that matters. I don't want to just pay bills. I don't want to just march through life. I don't want to just check off things. I want to be used. God uses people that will submit and follow him in obedience. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. Their first response when they hear the good news of what God has done, the first thing they do is they celebrate Paul. They build a building and name it after Paul. St. Paul's Preschool. Ever heard of one of those? They start to exalt Paul. They put Paul's name on things. They start to name seminaries after him. No, that's not what they do. Here's what the Bible says. They began glorifying God. 
Listen, they're thankful for Paul. Praise the Lord for Paul. They began glorifying God. And I'll just tell you, I'd have loved to have seen it. Here are these pastors, and they're serving these churches here in this, this persecuted city of Jerusalem, and they start to hear the good report, and it starts to well up inside of them, and they start to become excited, and they break out, and they worship God. They praise the Lord. Let me help you be sure of something. Listen to this very carefully in our day. When you have a true movement of God, listen very carefully. God is the one that's glorified and God is the one that's known. I tell you what, I'm sick and tired of our day. We've got, man, we got every which way to put stuff out on the internet and the press and TV and you start to hear about this person and you start to hear about this ministry and you start to hear about this meeting and you start to hear about this revival. Listen, if it is a true movement of God, God is the one that is glorified. God is the one that is known. He's all you can see. They praise God. Then notice this. They start to tell him what God has done in the Jews. Now, they listen to his report, and they've worshiped because of his report, but then they start to tell him what God has done in the Jews. Paul gives the report of what God has done in the Gentiles. They say to him, see many thousands. It literally translates myriads. It literally translates tens of of thousands, myriads, tens of thousands. He tells them what God has done in the midst of the Gentiles, and they say, Brother Paul, look around here. Tens of thousands of Jews have believed. God's been working there, yes, praise the Lord. He's been working here as well. It says this, I want you to notice this, that these new Jewish Christians Tens of thousands of them, it says they are zealous from the, for the law. Now, I want you to stay with me. This is, going to be, this is going to be important. These Jews have trusted Jesus for their salvation. The Bible calls them believers. There's only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And so they, these Jews, have trusted Jesus not of any work that they did. They've trusted Jesus to be saved. Tens of thousands of them. Yet there's a weird thing happening in the, church, early, the start of the church. They still want to honor God by keeping the ceremonial laws of the Jews. Now, it's not for salvation. They understand that. They're saved by faith in Jesus. But they, they love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is their heritage. And they now see Jesus, and not as part of their salvation, but as part of their honoring God, they want to remember the ceremonial laws of the Jews. Now listen, this was a dilemma in the early church. Do the Jews keep doing these things? That was a great dilemma. Do they have to keep doing these things? Do the Gentiles need to do these things? Does a person have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Do the Jews, do the Gentiles have to do these things? They are saved, but they still love the Jewish traditions. Now notice, that's okay. They want to honor God. That's good. They know, however, they're not saved by those things. But, (laughs) 
You ever notice there's always a but? You ever notice that? There's always an issue, Dad Gilman. There's always an issue. Verse 21, here we go. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Let me read verse 21 again. There's a lot there. And they, there, there's these 10,000 that have been saved, 10,000, and they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. These Jews have come to understand that God sent the promised Messiah and that he was Jesus. But, now stay with me, however, they are told, they are being told that it, Paul is dishonoring the God that sent the Messiah, that Paul is dishonoring the God that promised the Messiah, that Paul is dishonoring their belief set that led them to have faith in Jesus. That's what they're hearing. Now, who are these people that are teaching them this? Well, I'll just, I'll just skip and tell you right who they are. They are the Judaizers. We see them all through the New Testament. These are folks who want to deny the gospel. They are folks that want to change the gospel. They want people to keep the laws and maybe follow Jesus in order to be saved. And so listen, they're changing the gospel. They're distorting the gospel. These are false teachers. And they are liars. I want you to think about this. We've read for five or six chapters now what Paul taught. We've read his message. We have what, what he taught. Did he teach that? No, he didn't teach that. He didn't tell them that. He told them they're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He didn't tell them that. They are liars and they're stirring up people and they're dividing people and they're slandering the preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, friend. I want you to be sure of this. Where God works, so does Satan. Do you understand that? That's the truth. Where God works, so does Satan. Where the truth is proclaimed, lies and liars show up. And when something good and God-glorifying is taking place, you will find trouble. I hate it. I hate it. But I know it to be true. Where God works, so does Satan. The liars show up. Verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. These good people, these saved people, they've been misled. They've been stirred up by the liars, by the false teachers. And these pastors of the church say, what are we going to do, Brother Paul? What are we going to do? They're going to hear that you're here. They're going to hear that you've come. They're going to hear the one that's been slandering our God. He's here. What are we going to do? They have a plan. Verse 23. 
Therefore, do this that we tell you. The pastors are talking to Paul. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, under a vow, that means they've taken up a Nazarite vow to honor God. That's part of the Jewish tradition. To show their devotion to God, they had taken up this vow. We have these four guys, and they've taken up this vow. Verse 24. Take them, Paul, you take them, and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they've been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Verse 24, they say, go with them. Take these four men, go with them to the temple. When you get to the temple, pay for their sacrifices. Part of that ceremony, they had to offer sacrifices. Pay for that. Pay for the ceremony where they have their heads shaved. Pay for that. Purify yourself as well. He had been in the Gentile land. He'd been amongst the Gentiles. So when you go, purify yourself as well. They say, do these things so that they will see what you do, that they will see that you do not dishonor God. They will see that you're not dishonoring their beliefs. They say, do this as a way to keep peace. I'm going to sum all that up. That's what they say. Do this so it's a way to keep peace. Verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote back in Acts 15, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what, from, and from what is strangled and from fornication. Remember, this same question had popped up. Do the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christians? In Acts 15, the, the church said, no, keep these rules in order not to offend the Jews. But no, they don't have to keep the Jewish law. They don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. But keep these laws, these rules, in order not to offend the Jews. Be very clear. I want you to be clear of this. They are not calling on him to change the truth. There's only one truth. They are not calling on him to change the gospel. In doing this, he's not changing the gospel. There's salvation only by faith in Jesus and no work of the law. Paul makes that clear. That's why the Judaizers are mad at him. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now, verse 26 very simply means this. Paul did it. They said, do these things in order to keep the peace. Verse 26, very simply, Paul did it. I want you to think with me for just a second. I want you to see what's happened here. And I want you to see how big it is. It's, it's not a small thing. I want you to see how big it is. I want you to think. Do you know what Paul could have done? Do you know what Paul could have done? Paul could have said, do you know who I am? 
He could have said, I'm an apostle of the living Christ. Do you know who I am? He could have backed up off those folks and said, listen, guys, do you know who I am? Do you know where I've been? Do you know what I've endured? Do you know that I'm a Jew of all the Jews? Do you know how many Gentiles I've led to Christ? Don't tell me about doctrine. Don't tell me about these theological things. Don't tell me about how not to offend anybody. Do you know who I am? I am Paul. Do you know that's what he could have done? why doesn't he here's the whole point to the whole message today what has to be present for God to use us Paul knew the goal was for the gospel to go out he was sure of it that's what he spent his life doing he wasn't mistaken he wasn't trying to figure out what the goal of the church was He knew the goal was for the gospel to go out. And he knew that the goal would require unity to be achieved. He knew that. And he knew unity would only be found in his humility. Folks, when you find division and divisiveness, and lies and slander, you'll always find pride. Do you know that? You come along, and when you find division, and you find factions grouping up, and you find divisiveness, and you find lies and slander at the core of that, you'll always find pride. Paul goes, and Paul serves, and Paul preaches, and Paul leads in humility. Do you know where he learned it? Do you know his Savior, Jesus, not that far back, could have said the same thing? Do you know his Savior, Jesus, could have said, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I'll not go to that cross. I'm the creator of all things. I am God himself. I'm the king of kings. Do you know who I am? I'll not go to that cross. I've never sinned, not one time. Your filth, your sorry shame, your sin, it's not mine. Do you know who I am? Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. His example, our example, is Jesus. Let me tell you something. We, you, cannot serve Christ except in humility. You want to be useful to the cause? You want to do great things for the name of Jesus Christ? You cannot be used apart from true humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come, and I'm thankful for this message. I'm thankful for your verses, your word. Thankful that you lead us as a church, that you guide us as a church. 
Thankful that you remind us that we are a family as believers. We have a mission, a goal, and that we serve you in humility and obedience. Obedience grounded in humility. Lord, I pray that we've been instructed today. I pray we've been encouraged. I pray that today we would walk out of here ready to be used, willing to be used, exhibiting humility, able to be used. Lord, I pray the impact of that in these days would be great. I pray that a lost and dying world would see the hope of Jesus in your humble, obedient service. Lord, use us like that. Help us be like that. Be glorified in us like that. Lord, I pray now if there's somebody that's here listening, somebody that's listening in some other means, and they're wondering what's the What's the big deal of this anyway? Why, why are they straining so hard to put out a gospel? I pray, Lord, that they would hear the good news of the gospel today is for them. And that in the, in the, the Savior, the gospel, there's the forgiveness of sin, redemption, restoration. And I pray, Lord, that some, maybe many today, in the hearing of good news, Lord, they would turn and they would trust you for your glory, for your namesake. Lord, we come and we just open this up before you. We submit it to you. We pray that you have spoken and we know you have. We pray that you would continue to speak. I pray that it would bear fruit in your people today. I pray, Lord, that a lost world would hear the good news today. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to I tell you something today. Do you know there's something else you can't do apart from humility? And that is trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You see, that's the problem with pride. Pride helps us to say, you know what, I'll do it myself. I don't need a Savior. I'm not going to bow a knee. I'm not going to submit. And that's what pride does. It separates us from God. You cannot approach Jesus claiming him as your Savior apart from humility today. I want to tell you the good news of the gospel today. Listen, we have a Savior in Jesus. We have hope in Jesus today. All of us have sinned. Each of us, all of us have sinned. In our sin, we have broken our relationship with a holy God. We have earned a punishment. We stand in the condemnation of a holy, just God. Punishment is death. But God loves us so much. He loves you so much that he sends his only begotten son, Jesus. He comes, he lives a life he never sins, not one time. He goes to the cross of Calvary and he pays for our sins on the cross. He dies for sin and for sinners, paying for it, settling it on the cross of Calvary. It's paid for in Jesus. Put him in a grave. Three days later, he walks out of the grave and he stands as the risen Savior, the risen Lamb, the hope of sinners. And the Bible says if we will trust in him, not of any work that we would do, not of any system that we would belong to, not of any church role that we would join, but if we would trust in him, he'll save us today. If you will trust in Jesus, I want to tell you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Whoever you are, however you find yourself today, whatever your sin, if you will turn to Jesus Christ today, he will save you today. He'll save you today. That's good news. You know what? It takes humility. God, I'm done. God, I I have no answer in and of myself. I'm done. And in absolute humility, I turn to you and I claim you as my King, my Lord, my hope, my Savior. If you've never done that, do that today. If you've never done that, do that today. He'll save you today. That is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you've made that decision, but you've never fallen in believer's baptism. 
What an awesome time of the year as we head into our celebration of Easter to, to set a date to be baptized as a testimony of what we believe of Jesus, a testimony of who we are in Jesus. And so you come, it's not part of our salvation, you're saved by faith in Jesus alone, but you come today and you say, well, I, I've put my trust in Jesus. Maybe it was recently, maybe it was sometime way back, but I want to follow in believer's baptism as a testimony to Jesus. You come as well, we'll set a date It'll be a great day of celebration. You come as well. Maybe you're looking for a church home and you've prayed about it and you believe God has led you here. You come as well. Together we'll stand on his word. We'll preach his good news for his glory until he comes again. Maybe today you're dealing with something else. And that's, that's always an awesome thing that God speaks in, in many different ways through his word. And, and, and maybe you're dealing with something else today. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's the trouble of life. But I want to tell you, God's grace is extended to you today in the person of Jesus. There's hope in Jesus today for you. Maybe you want to come pray at an altar. Maybe you want to pray with me. I'm going to ask that no one would stir about or head for an exit. I truly believe it's the most important time of our service, our time to respond to the preached word of God. We're going to stand to sing. If God has spoken to you, you step out. You come on, I'll meet you here. If you need more information, you come on. Let's sell it today. I'll meet you here. Amen.